what's better than earning money from a nine to five job? It's earning money while you sleep, which is made possible if you start investing. You're listening to the Real Estate Investing Demystified with your very own dynamic duo, Ava Benasaki and August Biniaz. Tune in as we discuss everything real estate, both on the passive and active sides. We feature life-changing stories of today's real estate leaders that will help build your own roadmap to success. This is a show that will lead you to diversified portfolio, a much bigger revenue, and a next level venture that brings you a smooth cash flow. Let's get this episode started. All right, it's another Thursday. Another Thursday. Are you giving up our secrets of what day we record? But it is. Yes, it is a Thursday. Interesting times. We're wrapping things up because we're on our way to Florida. So right. we got to get this show done. We got a bunch of other things to do. I got some teeth cleaning to do today because I'm in show business, right? Show business. <laughs> I got to be perfect. You got to be perfect. Um, but, but other than that, we're excited about our show. We have our good friend on the show and we've got a chance to meet each other in person. A lot of times, a lot of our friends, we don't get to meet in person, but today's guest we've met in person. I we've- fell in love with Keely when I met her at the Think Multifamily Conference in Dallas. She just had like this amazing vibe and I'm like, I want to be her friend. Energy. Absolutely. <laughs> Energy. I was very excited to have met her as well and I consider her a friend. So we'll get into that, but she's doing some exciting stuff. She so is. we're going to talk about all of that great things and, and uh, get the show started. Just a little sneak peek. You can syndicate more than real estate. Can syndicate anything. You can syndicate anything. And we're going to talk about what else you can syndicate. <laughs> All right, guys, here we go. So today we're joined by Keely Hubbard. Now, Keely is former VP of sales of an international organization. Keely implemented her custom sales strategy to grow annual revenues from $40 million to over $220 million in less than four years. As a sales coach and business strategist, Keely helps her clients confidently close deals and raise more capital through intentional strategic and authentic conversations that win. Now, Keely also invests in large multifamily and Texas vineyards. So she is the managing partner of Hubbard Capital Group where she's relentless and exceeding her investors' expectations. So we believe that this interview with Keely will bring great value to women real estate investors looking to scale or start their own real estate private equity businesses. Not only women, but that's our main focus, but I'm sure men can take a lot of... uh, Golden nuggets from this. Absolutely. All right. Welcome, Keely. Thank you for coming on. I've been so looking forward to this. So thank you for having me. And it was so great to meet you all in person too. I really enjoyed that. Right on. Let's just start off. Can you tell everybody about your background and then your start in real estate, please? Yes, absolutely. So I'm one of those people that escaped corporate. I always say corporate America, but corporate exists everywhere, right? Corporate Canada, corporate America. But I escaped back in 2017. I was VP of sales for the company, like you'd mentioned before. And I just got tired of the corporate rat race. I was traveling 23 days a month. And the more that I climbed the corporate ladder, the further I got away from my passion, which was really working directly with my salespeople. So I left to start my own consulting business. I still run that today. It's a huge passion of mine. And I was in the financial education space when I was in corporate. So I've been having conversations with people about money for a very long time. And when I left and I had more time available from traveling, my dad was at the same time getting out of the financial markets. He was a professional trader, managed his own hedge fund for many years and Forex and futures. And he said, this isn't it anymore. Financial markets can't get the returns for investors. We're going into real estate. Do you want to do it with me? Had no clue what he meant. If anybody's met my dad, I was like, yeah, I'm in. (laughs) I would go into business with him anytime. So that's really where we started. I was in multifamily and started in small multifamily, very quickly realized 
we cannot scale like this and we can't really serve the investors we want to help from that space. So we started getting into large multifamily and now we are also involved in the agriculture space of building vineyards from the ground up here in Texas. So lots of things going on, but all exciting and very blessed. Amazing. And I've actually met your dad in person as well. I think he was at the Dallas conference. Yeah, yeah, quite the team. So good for you guys. Lots to break down there. Why don't we start off with sales? Because sales is really the foundation of raising capital, in my opinion. So your sales coach for business owners. But Keely, what did good sales look like that appealed to customers? So if you walk into a clothing store or car dealership, what would you consider a good like mix of hands-on, soft sale, and also proactive kind of take initiative guidance. Or hands off. Hands also. off. Yeah. Or hands off. <laughs> yeah. Most people hate salespeople because everybody has such poor experiences with salespeople, no matter where you go. If you're in Neva Marcus or you're buying a car or you're just walking through the mall. I don't know if y'all deal with that in Canada, but when you're in malls here in the US, it's like you got to stay away from the middle where all the kiosks are because they're trying to like grab your hair and straighten it, squirt lotion on your hands, slip bracelets on your hands. They're always trying to sell you something. And we have such horrible experiences with salespeople that most consumers are so resistant to that process. And I think a lot of people, when they get into capital raising, they also resist it because they don't want to come across that way. And most clients that I've worked with have this misconception that they have to be somebody other than themselves when they're raising capital, I got to turn into this caricature version of who I am. I got to be outgoing and shoot the breeze and get people to like me. And what's missing is the authenticity of let's just have a conversation with this person. I don't know if I can help, but let's sit down and talk about it. And it's the real authentic conversations that's missing in any sales process. And that's what I teach is that you can close a ton of business. You can raise millions of capital by just having authentic conversations with people but it's getting people to take their walls down in the first place because they're so terrified of the sales process. That's right. Yeah. Break it down a bit more, yeah. I guess, kind of, we can get into a bit more, but go ahead. Yeah, Keely, we kind of discussed your experience and background in sales and marketing, but let's talk about like, how was the transition from conventional sales and marketing to investor relations and raising capital for syndicated investments? Because was it different? Was it yeah, it really wasn't because when I was, when I've done a lot of different industries in my sales career, but where I really built my career in corporate and proved this out by teaching other people how I sell, which is what grew the company, it was in financial education. So talking to people about money is the most sensitive subject. It's what most people hold their cards close to their vest. They don't share that information with anybody. So I had to get really good when I was in the corporate space of selling for myself, but then also teaching this to my sales teams of getting people's walls down. So they're willing to open up and have a dialogue about something that's so personal for them. I think the one thing that's different in this space is it's a longer sales cycle. Depending on what you're selling in the corporate world, if you're or if you're B2B, I mean, you deal with enterprise sales that are 18 months of sales cycles. But in our space, one of the challenges is we get people excited about it early on, but you may not have a deal live right now. So we're trying to get them excited and hold them there and make sure that we've got that commitment, even if you don't have an opportunity for two months. So there are some nuances there. But it's learning people and it's learning how to get people to trust you quickly. So they're willing to talk to you about their challenges financially. And let's go over this a bit more because I know we're spending some time on here, but it's, I think it's very important. Obviously, investor relations and equity 
is a very important part of a real estate investment firm, or if you're syndicating deals, equity is a very important component. It's one of the main three pillars, right? It's the deal, it's executing the business plan, and it's having the equity, both debt and equity, to be able to fund the project. So let's walk through the journey. So marketing takes place. Now, marketing can be very broad. I would say that the show we're having right now is one of those marketing channels, but a marketing takes place, an investor, a potential investor realizes that we even exist at some point, there is a call to action. There's a book call. There's a book conversation. There's some form of dialogue. And if we don't have a live deal like you just touched on, which most syndicators in most cases don't have a live deal at all times. Right now, we're just sitting on the sideline. We're not even looking to go into any deals while the Fed is still raising rates. So talk to us about that nurture process. Now, we have a robust nurture process Internally here at CPI, we send out, we're trying not to overwhelm our investor database because last thing we want is them pressing the unsubscribe button, but there is a level of a nurture. So we're creating so much great content. We're doing all the backend work of sourcing this information, creating the content and putting into our investors inbox. So then it really helps us with them seeing us as thought leaders, them seeing us as basically living, breathing this space. And then being always on top of their mind. Is that the recommended approach that you see in this kind of investor journey timeline, particularly in syndicated deals, where it's some form of email that they regularly receive? Talk to us about the process. Yeah. Y'all do a fabulous job of nurturing your database. I look at it from two different tenants that you need to consider. So one is the modality of how are you actually getting that information to them? And the second one is what is the messaging itself? And so, yes, emails are important, right? Email campaigns, but we have to recognize who's in our investor database. And if they're high net worth individuals, they're high performance professionals, they generally barely have time to read the emails that are coming in from their W-2 or their other business, let alone trying to filter through all the other personal emails that we get, right? I know, Ava, you know this, Nima Marcus emails and what's the sale going on? And oh, wait, here's a real estate investment. And people are just inundated with information. So I do love the idea of sending emails, but are there other ways that we can get in touch with our investors and keep them in the loop? So I'm a big fan of text marketing. It has a 90, 97 to 98% deliverability rate, not deliverability, my apologies, open rate. Open rate is more important. Open rate on email, industry averages 15 to 30%, it ranges. So you're getting straight to their phone, bypassing their email inbox. I love text marketing. So that's another one. The third one is, I want to see my investors face-to-face. The more you see them face-to-face, the more trust that's there, the more that you really build a relationship. I'm not about an investor list. I want an investor community and the community has culture. And it's really easy to build that when you're seeing them, you're seeing their face. So I love investor, I hate the word webinar, but investor virtual meetups. So a lot of clients that I've worked with will put in place a virtual meetup for their community of investors. And it's a great place once a month, give it a catchy name and a fun title and create a culture that people show up with their favorite glass of wine or a cocktail and there's music. And they know when they come in, they're going to learn something about the real estate industry, how to make money, something about their 401k or their retirement accounts that they didn't know. We're always providing value, but we're seeing them face-to-face. So I love that idea and it maximizes your time, right? It's a one-to-many communication type where people can show up and get to see your face, get plugged in. And you can talk about, here's why we don't have any opportunities right now. Here's what's going on in the market. And here's how our team is adjusting and managing that. The second tenet of marketing, I believe is messaging. What are you actually saying to your investors? I think when we get into this space, we can get so consumed with how amazing our investments are, right? Whether it's new development, 
it's agriculture, right? We're in vineyards, it's multifamily, that all of our communication to them is all about that. And it's like, well, where they're at, a lot of them mentally is they're also still heavily invested in the stock market. And so we don't acknowledge what they're going through, what news they're hearing. I always check Yahoo Finance. I look at CNBC. When they're watching Wall Street Journal, when they're watching the news, they're reading articles, what are they hearing? Because we have to be in that frame of mind. What are the lies they're being fed by Wall Street? And how can we acknowledge where they're at and give them another perspective before we tell them how amazing our investments are? So messaging is just as important. You said it perfectly. I want to have an investor community, not an investor list. So Wow. Yeah, I really like that. And let me ask you on these once per month webinars, does everybody turn their camera on and they all talk to one another and it's kind of like a networking? We've seen that. I think you have to create that environment. One of them that we run, it's actually a closed to just investors that are within the vineyards, but we call it through the grapevine and they know every time they log in, there's music and it's, it's usually three different songs that have to do with Texas or grapevines and every... People hear this song on the radio and they text me, I heard this today and I thought about you. How are the vines doing? So we create this culture where there's music in the beginning. It's a fun environment. And it's like, hey, if it's your first time here, let us know in the chat, where are you? Where are you from? And what are you drinking? And we always cheers at the end of it. So I think if you create that environment, people want to have their camera on and you're acknowledging people like, hey, Joe, it's great to see you. That looks like a really good cab. What are you drinking? So it makes people want to turn their camera on and interact because they're getting positive reinforcement from being engaged in the process. Yes, human beings are tribal. So imagine having a tribe of all high net worth investors. It looks like a cell phone, which is filled with uh, high net worth. That's a lot of fun. Again, we were talking about how Keely is energetic and fun to be around. So yeah, awesome. Let's switch the conversation up a bit here. Yeah, this is something I'm really excited to get your opinion on, actually, Keely. In sales, of course, there are differences when marketing to women and men. So do you feel it's the same way when raising capital, for an example, for real estate deals? Do women have a different psychology than men when investing capital? So looking at it as the perspective as the woman is the investor or the woman raising capital? Woman is an investor. We can talk about raising capital as well. We can do both ways. But this is a question that we were kind of talking about before the show. We're like, hey, this is super exciting because Ava's like, oh my God, I Never thought about this. So we love to dissect it as far as we can go. But yeah, as far as marketing material, we know in conventional marketing, the way you market to women is different than the way you market to men. Like if you use the same marketing, one or other is going to be totally lost. So now in capital raising, are you going to a similar type of pain point? Are you talking about the crypto and the stock market? Or are you talking about what passive and one income can buy for women? Like how are you targeting your marketing and your approach and your investor relations women compared to men? So as an example, if you were speaking to a group of women, you're on stage and there's an audience of 200 women who are high-performance business owners, how you speak about investing is probably going to be a little bit different than if it were a room full of men. There are certain things you can get away with saying to women, acknowledging that a lot of them are the CFO of their household, right? Don't tell your husband that, but we understand that you're the one keeping an eye on the money and making those financial decisions. So let me simplify investments because Wall Street tries to complicate it on purpose. I think a lot of men love the big words, the high powered side of investing where women are like, just quit with the acronyms and tell me what's really going on. Let's have a real conversation about it. So I've also realized in having conversations with clients, right? When I was selling financial education, 95%, if I had to guess a number, 95% of my clients were men. They came in, they wanted to learn how to trade stocks, futures, options, Forex. They want to get better at managing their own money. But I knew if I did not get the woman involved, there was no chance that he was going to actually enroll in the academy. And they were investing 15 to 75 grand in private education. 
but I knew that their wife, their spouse, their partner, significant other needed to be involved because she would be upset or offended if he made the decision without including her. So I knew if I could get the spouse or the woman on board, they were good to go. So I was really aiming my conversations, talking to them. They were like, I'm excited about it. Would it make sense to talk about this with your wife? Because I would have found out at that point who they were married to. Would it make sense to talk about this with your wife? Not to try to sell her on it, but I found that most people at least want to have their spouse on board with what it is that they're doing so she can be supportive and y'all can be on the same page. And I always had some fun with it too. Some guys were like, oh, my wife doesn't even know I'm here. I've already lost 40 grand in my trading account. Don't tell her that. My response is like, whoa, we got a problem, right? Like, I'm not going to be the reason that you're sleeping on the couch or you're sleeping in the garage for a month because you made this decision without her. Why don't we bring her into the fold? So it was really more about having the couple there and they're both on the same page and they're they're both involved in the investing decisions. It's the same when raising capital. Women get upset because they weren't involved in the decision. They feel hurt or offended by not even being asked. So I think it's important that you have both parties on board. I like that. And when, when I'm having an investor call, sometimes both husband and wife will show up. But if not, the husband or wife will say, hey, I'm just betting right now. I want to bring my husband or wife on after so that I love mm-hmm. what you did there. You try to bring the bring them together. Yeah, sometimes the wife is hiding in the background listening. Who the heck is this woman <laughs> my husband is trying to send oh, money to? And right? that's why I say, Ava, don't be too giggly on the calls and be very you know. dark. It's true. It's very true. When I was selling financial education, I was doing workshops and again, 95% are men. And at the time I was 24 years old. I'm quite a bit older than that now, but I was 24 years old. And so when the spouse would come in, cause they wanted to evaluate the Academy, my goal is to not be a distraction. I'm sitting next to the wife. I'm getting rid of barriers. They're in between us, whether it's a desk, but I'm sitting next to the wife. I'm not sitting next to the husband with the wife across from us at the table trying to sell her or convince her. It's like, I don't want her to think that I'm some 24-year-old woman trying to get her husband to spend a bunch of money. And that is something you have to be aware of as a woman in this space. And we can still be feminine and we can be all the amazing things that we are, but don't be a distraction. I really get on a soapbox when women lead with that as an advantage and sell from that perspective. That bothers me. I would rather be recognized as admired for my skill set and my knowledge and how I help people versus, oh my gosh, she's really attractive to look at. So the women, I think, ruin it for people like us, Ava, that lead with that. It's just like, you're so much more than how you look. Absolutely. So I try to tone that down and not be a distraction. Well said, Keele. Moving on to the next question here. I'm curious, what metrics do you focus on on your marketing spend? So what sort of feedback do you prefer on assessing whether your messaging is resonating? What is your take on advertising, SEOs, videos, social media, et cetera? I want to get all the goods here. And then how should you go about targeting potential audience and converting them to paying customers or investors? I think with anything, whether you're spending money or you're not, and I'm not investing in ad spend right now, our growth of our investor database has been organic and been referrals simply because we're not raising 50 million this year for the vineyards. We're just getting each individual project going and we're able to supply that just from our own network of people. But with any clients that I've worked with that have done ad spend, they're focused on SEO. SEO is a whole nother animal in and of itself. So my recommendation there is to hire a professional that really understands SEO and can put out content where I feel like what's missing in messaging and marketing, whether it's an email, it's in blog posts, it's in videos, you're spending dollars to drive views to this type of messaging is there's no emotional content there. And what I mean by that is it's always look at how amazing apartment investing is. But what people don't realize what drives people to make a decision to change and to do something different is a pain point. Mm -hmm. And we skip over that completely. So we have to bring that back into our messaging. And it could be as simple as I know you're probably sitting here looking at your retirement accounts, you know, wondering how you lost six figures this past year. 
you may have been on the stock market roller coaster now for over a decade and you know you want to do something different, but you're so overwhelmed with everything else in your business, you just don't know where to turn. If you feel like that, I get it. We felt the exact same way a couple of years ago, and that's why we started looking into alternative investments. Before we get into like, hey, look at the returns, look at the tax advantages, it's acknowledging where they're at and speaking to their heart. That's what gets people to make a change. And that has to come into all of your content. It's why AI is amazing, but when you're using AI to write articles, you have to go back through and you've got to loop that emotional content in because that's what drives people to say, okay, you know what? You're right. I have lost a lot of money. I'm tired of feeling this way. I am stressed about my finances. I need to do something different. People will stick with the devil they know, right? They may have lost a lot of money in the stock market, but if we don't get them to a place where they acknowledge, yes, this is important enough and painful enough to fix it, they're not going to make a change. I love that you're saying that. Remember when I came to you the other day and I'm like, we got to start following what's happening outside of real estate and try to relay that when we're yes. exactly what she's saying. She just kind of put it all into perspective, but I couldn't agree more. Yeah. You wanted to connect on an emotional level. I just cared about the IRR. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, feminine versus masculine energy, right? <laughs> there you go. It's a great example of it. <laughs> Switch the conversation, really switch it up again really about that woman, men dynamic in the business and workplace. But go ahead, Ava. All right. So after a good half a century after the women's rights movement in the 1960s, there's still a gender wage gap. So Keely, what's your take on affirmative action approaches to giving women a leg up? For an example, such as Finland's quota of 40% of corporate board seats must be taken by women for companies with more than 250 employees, as opposed to more bootstrapping approaches that remove restrictions to enabling women entrepreneurs and hiring on more women. So isn't there a better way to speed up gender equality in your opinion? And any thoughts on the proposed equal rights amendment, the ERA? I may have an oppositional perspective on this. So I even have had a woman get upset with me about this in the past. This is an interesting story. So when I was in corporate, I was the only female executive on the team. And I was also the youngest. The second oldest was 15 to 16 years older than I was. So I was dealing with many executives. Youngest was 42, 43. And then CEOs, COO, CMO, they're all in their 60s. And for me, yes, there were some things that happened where I was called dear and the things that are just inappropriate in the workplace. But I believe what earned my right, my seat at the table was me believing that I deserved to sit there in the first place. And I think a lot of women play small and we perpetuate this idea that we're less than with a lot of these movements. Yes, I believe women deserve a seat at the table. But if we don't believe that first internally, nobody else is going to do it for us. And it's in how you show up every day in your skill set and how you present yourself and the lines that you draw in the sand of how you're willing to be treated. There was a time in a meeting, my former CEO, where he just went off. Something went wrong. It wasn't my fault, but I'm the one that he chose to yell at in a meeting full of a lot of people that reported into me that were directors, other VPs, other executives in the meeting. And so for me, it's like, if I don't believe that I deserve a seat at the table and I deserve to be treated the exact same way as any other man in the room, I'm not going to step up and stand up for myself. So when we the meeting took a break, I made sure people heard it. I said, I need to speak to you outside. And so he came outside and I said, you're not allowed to ever talk to me like that again. And I drew the line in the sand in a respectful manner, but everything changed from that point forward because you teach people how to treat you. So when initiatives happen in the company for the lean in movement, Keely, do you want to head this up? My response was no. And I didn't want to head it up. So you're the only executive, female executive on the board. Do you want to head this up? And I said, no, because it's going to perpetuate the idea that women don't deserve to be at this level. 
I would rather lead by example. So I know I have a different perspective on it, but a lot of this women don't show up at the level they should because they don't believe they deserve a seat at the table. So I think we have to do the inner work first. So it's the merit approach rather than any type of quotas or uh, forced restrictions. Instead of waiting for organizational changes and rules and regulations to come down, demand it for yourself first. Walk your butt into the CEO's office and sit down and say, I deserve this. Yes. I deserve the pay grade. I deserve, right? But we have to advocate for ourselves instead of waiting for somebody else to do it for us. Yes. Other plan is just Ava walked in with a gun. I was, I that works too. I was under <laughs> duress and that's how she became the CEO and that's how I work for her. I love it. That's right. <laughs> All right. I'm just loving Keeley more and more as she talks. Oh. Loving her more and more. She's just such, such an incredible woman. All right. So. I'm really excited to learn more about the vineyards. I want to learn how did you get into this field? And you are an agricultural investor that syndicates vineyards. So let's talk about that. Yeah. How did you get into it? The crash course. Talk to us about everything. I mean, you were talking about tax advantages that certain real estate and syndications have. Is there, and -hmm. we know that, for example, we were interviewing a friend of ours who does, I believe, oil and gas, and there's huge tax benefits there. So talk to, yeah, give us a crash course on vineyards obviously sounds very fun and elegant but tell us about the money tell us about a crash course on this asset class and do people get free wine (laughs) of course right of course so i'll give you a quick kind of how we got into it we actually had the partner of ours called us it was my phone number was on the website at the time and i picked up the phone he's like hey you don't know who i am but i got to talk to your dad can i talk to him can i have his phone number and i was like sure he's really adamant (laughs) call my dad i'm like Hey, I just gave some guy your phone number. I don't know what he wants, but he's going to be calling you. And it was our partner. And he heard my dad on another podcast where my dad was talking about, what do you do in your spare time? Talked about the ranch, right? We have a family ranch. It's close to 300 acres. Going to run cattle on it. Got to put 30 acres of vineyards on there to help make the land payment. And so that came up in conversation. And our partner heard this. He also knew my dad had run six companies. He knew my sales and marketing background. And so he put the connection together. They're the agriculture side. They're the vineyard operators. They're experts in that. They've never raised capital. They've never syndicated. They don't even know you know, where to start. So that's why they partnered with us was, can you bring that aspect to the business and help us create a brand and build a legacy in Texas? So that's where we started. Vineyard is a very elegant name, but the reality is we're grape farmers, right? That's what we're doing. We are growing wine grapes. We are crushing the juice, selling it to the wineries. And that's the only part of the supply chain that we are focused on the syndication space because that's where the majority of the money's made. It's fun. It's sexy to make wine, but that's not where the money's made here. So we don't care if we were doing trash dumps. It makes a lot of money. We'll do it and our investors will follow, but we just happen to be in a fun space of vineyards. So Texas vineyards, Texas has a $13.1 billion wine industry here. Most people don't know that because it's all consumed in state. So nearly all of it is consumed in state, but we don't have enough grapes to meet the demand that continues to grow. We are only currently producing 50% of the wine grapes that we need to meet the demand. So where are the extra grapes coming from? Well, anybody could guess that it's coming from California (laughs) to make the wines based on what Texans are wanting to purchase. And if you've ever met an obnoxious Texan, and if you haven't, maybe I'll be the first one. We don't like that. We like Texas to be Texas. We want Texas wine to be Texas grapes. And so our partners have their own 350 acre vineyard that they operate themselves. And they were tired of seeing like, why does California juice keep coming into Texas? And they realized there was this massive supply gap and so that was our goal. We're going to fill the supply gap. We're going to bring production up to meet existing wine demand and the growing wine demand. And it's all going to be Texas grapes, which wineries really love and appreciate. But that's kind of the business plan. And we're doing it different than most Texas is out there. They're mom and pop 
a vineyard of, for example, of our partners, 350 acre personal vineyard, they run it with three guys, big tractors, machines. That's how California runs their vineyards. Every other vineyard farmer in Texas is hand labor. You would need close to a hundred people during harvest, during pruning to do things by hand. We do it with large tractors. Why are Texas farmers not doing that already and transitioning over from a technology perspective? It's really expensive and they can't afford the equipment. One of our tractors comes from France and it's over half a million dollars just for that one piece of equipment. So how do you scale it? Well, you do syndication, right? You get economies of scale. We go in there, we operate like California. We really close the gap on the wine grape supply and make our wineries really happy at the same time, especially the big operators that have been waiting for a player like this to come on the scene. So we're really excited about it. Once in a lifetime opportunity and we jumped on it. And are you syndicating like more of like M&A type of style where you're syndicating the business itself or are your investors have, are you buying the dirt? Are you buying land? We're doing it all. So we're buying the land. Investors are invested in the business itself, but the business owns the land. So we buy a 400 acre block of land we've just purchased. We start doing land prep. We order the vines. We order all the steel. 240,000 T-posts of steel get delivered. So we have about 600 acres of vines going in the ground this coming spring, and they're in it for 25 years. And if we decide to replant, we have contingency funds for that as well. So it's an investment that cash flows for decades. I think that's why a lot of investors are attracted to it. I'm sure we are familiar with champagne and you can't call anything champagne unless it comes from the champagne region of France. Is the area, the geography in Texas that you're focusing on, does it have any potential to become the champagne region of Texas? Is it something special about the dirt or about the elevation or about water sources? Well, not champagne because it's too hot here. So the climate of the grapes that we grow is very similar to central California. And so we do a lot of reds and reds sell for quite a bit more than whites. That's why we like them too. It helps us hit our pro forma for our investors. But Texas land is so inexpensive. We're getting acreage below $3,000 an acre where similar land in California with same water sources would be $20,000, $40,000 an acre. So we can buy land for pretty inexpensive here. We're able to operate the vineyard at pretty low costs, right? Our labor tends to be less here as well. We sit on top of an aquifer that's been here for over a century. So we're not concerned about water sources like California is dealing with. And we don't have the humidity that a lot of other regions have, which require more spraying of fungicides. We've got a really kind of hot, dry climate, which is perfect for certain varietals that we grow. But Texas's land is cheap. That's a big reason for it. I'd say probably that's the biggest reason for it is the expensiveness of land. That's awesome. Can you guys give us like a quick overview of what's the risk return profile? Yeah, definitely. The downside of this, I'd say the downside, even though we have investors that are like, we don't care, we're in, is that you have to wait for returns. It does not cash flow out of the gate. Vineyards are not annual crops. You plant them once and they last 25 years. So it takes time for us to train the vines up and build a really strong woodstock before investors see a return. So their first return comes in at year four. But after year four, when we hit full harvest in year five, returns are over 30%. So we always say that the juice is worth the squeeze. It's worth the wait to get those returns. It is, we give it a 10-year return model, but it cash flows longer than that. But over 10 years, the returns are about 210 to 275%, depending on our production and, and the wine varietal. And then after that, it cash flows 16% a year for the life of the vineyard. If we decide to replant, we replant, we have contingency funds and it'll keep cash flowing 16% a year. So a lot of investors are looking at it like a legacy play. They're thinking about their kids, their grandkids. 
The risk in, in a vineyard, we actually are really excited about because our operation is so big. We have crop insurance, which I wish in multifamily, we could get occupancy insurance. <laughs> we can't, but in this space, we have multi-parallel crop insurance that we're paying anywhere between 600,000 to 800,000 a year in premiums to make sure that if something happens, our income is covered and we'll be reimbursed 75% of our projected harvest. So we can distribute checks to our investors. And then we just, right, we repair the vineyard and we plan for harvest the following year. So crop insurance is something that's really unique in this space. Got it. You guys started off with multifamily. Are you still investing in multifamily? And if yes, what is your allocation into vineyards to multifamily right now currently? We are not. We're divesting out of multifamily right now. So we're selling one of our properties. I'm just going to be blunt with you. My dad is tired of asset management of some of the deals we've done. We've done some heavy lifts. And I'm sure you all know being involved in the day-to-day with those heavy lifts and the big value adds, it's a lot of work. And so my dad has always wanted to be more invested in land. So we are in vineyards. We're looking at timber projects and we're exploring some other land opportunities. It's not that we won't go back into multifamily. I think we're going to wait to see just in this market. It makes more sense for our attention to be focused in the agriculture space to get this vineyard operation of multiple vineyard blocks up and running and build the infrastructure before we distract ourselves with other shiny objects. You're located where? I'm in Fort Worth, Texas. Fort- so Dallas, Fort Worth. Dallas and the wineries, where are they located? They are kind of Northwest Texas. You've ever heard of Lubbock? It's about 45 minutes outside of Lubbock. It's called the High Plains AVA, which stands for American Viticultural Area. Okay. You would never end up there unless you're driving through Texas headed to another state, maybe. There's a lot of cotton farmers out there. I think it's more than 30% of the U.S.'s cotton is grown out there. It's just flat land, no trees, not pretty, but it's a great climate for growing grapes. Got it, got it. And how far is it from Dallas? From where I'm in, it's about a four and a half to five hour drive. Okay, so it's a driving distance to get to visit yeah. possibly. Keely, what yeah. would be like your elevator pitch to an investor that's looking to possibly invest in these syndicated vineyards? Well, they wouldn't even know about it. If you're in a room of investors, what would be your elevator pitch when it comes or to- Or just like talking to somebody. I'm just curious, like on high, like yeah. really that, that quick- What I usually tell them, because this is what I found with investors is we have investors that are in multifamily, they're in the stock market. Diversification is important in their portfolio. And one of the challenges for a lot of investors in multifamily is their money flips sooner than they expected. Thought they were in a five to six year turn. They're getting their money out quite a bit sooner and then they don't know where to put it. So we're often hearing, where can I put my money long-term where it's going to generate passive income? And that's really what we've designed within the agriculture space, specifically with Texas vineyards. So I always come from the angle of passive income where you're not flipping your money constantly and having to put it somewhere. It's going to cash flow long-term. And I always give the caveat, with that being said, you're not going to expect returns right out of the gate. And I think the more that I emphasize that, the more investors want to be a part of it. I always lead with the negatives of why it's not the right fit for every investor. And they want to know more. Perceived negatives, I guess. And she, you were guessing she was going to include the free wine. <laughs> yeah, we're going to private label wine for sure. Our partner has their own crush facility and they have a winemaker. And we're looking at building out more crush facilities and getting involved in kind of that next step of the supply chain. Nice. So we might get into bottling, probably just private label for our investors. Not for the, the investors, side. right? That'd yeah. Be kind of a cool little like incentivize them. Hey, by the way, yes. are you going to yes. a couple bottles of this yes. beautiful wine? Actually, we could talk to you all day about all, all day. this great talks. Do you have any other questions, Ava? I think I'm good. I'll be probably calling you up. And yeah, we really appreciate your wisdom and we really appreciate you giving us all these golden nuggets and yeah. information about the business you're in and investor relations and vineyards. Yeah, let's get to the next segment of our show. All right. The 10, 10 championship, championship rounds, rounds of freedom. freedom. <laughs> 
So whatever comes top of mind, I'm going to start asking you questions and really looking forward to hearing what you got to say. So the first question, who was the most influential person in your life? My dad. Without a doubt in my mind. Everybody always thinks it's a celebrity or historical figure, but it's been my father. And the reason for that, he's a Marine and it's just his persistence and his mindset. And I always remember a quote that he says, he's like, if you can't run anymore, walk, if you can't walk anymore, crawl. If even if you're on your belly, whatever it takes, just keep moving forward. And I've seen him go through so many things in his life and he never lets it get him down. And he's such an inspiration to me. Oh, that's beautiful. All right, Keeley. Next question. What is the number one book you'd recommend? There's so many. One that I really love is called The Soul of Money by Lynn Twist. And it's so good because obviously we're involved in money in our business. We're talking to investors about money and we don't understand or even think about some of the constructs that we have in our mind about how we view money. And so I think it's breaking through some of those belief systems. But this book was really showed me how much we're just a vessel Money is just a tool and we're simply the vessel. And so the more money that we have, the more money can flow through us to be a vessel for good and do more good in this world. It's such an incredible book. Probably shouldn't give you a second one, but The Untethered Soul is another great one. All right, next question. If you had the opportunity to travel back in time, what advice would you give your younger self? Oh my gosh, I love that. I love that question. My advice would be to bring joy back into the process. I mean, I'm just now learning that this past year from a business coach, from I'm such an intense personality. You may not see that, but I'm such a, like, I'm a driver. When I was in the corporate space, it was this hustle culture. You got to do more to be more to get more. And you just exhaust yourself and you kind of get to a place where it's like emotionally bankrupt. Like, why am I doing this? If it's not fun, what's the point? And I think that in business, we lose sight of having joy in the process my nickname as a child was Twinkle. It is Twinkle. My grandma still calls me that, but she said it's because I was always had this joy in my spirit. You could feel it when I walked in the room and I realized like, man, what kind of energy am I bringing into a room? I got to get back to who I was as a child and not let business and all the to-dos and all the things and responsibilities that we have just suck the joy out of the process. Cause that's what life is supposed to be. Why don't we enjoy this crazy wild ride that we're on? Have fun while you do it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> All right. Next question. What's the best investment you've ever made? It's the vineyards. I know it sounds like it's a canned pitch, but for us, it's the vineyards. And even though the payout and the returns for us are coming with the investors in years four or five, this for me has been a lifetime opportunity, completely changing the financial trajectory of my life. Tremendous. Amazing. Now, what's the worst investment you've ever made and what lessons did you <laughs> learn from it? And a business partner. Partnerships, as y'all know, this are so important. My dad and I laugh. We're like, we're only ever going to go into business with family from now on. And I know people are like, oh, family, that sounds risky. But our family is so tight knit. I got into, when I left corporate, I got into a partnership that completely leveled me financially. And it was something I poured my heart and soul into. It was going to be a game changer for everybody involved. And it was just felt like the rug was pulled out from underneath me overnight and completely leveled me. And so I was left feeling, was I cut out for this? Should I have not left corporate? Like, should I be in business? And I'm so glad that I went through that because looking back, there were so many lessons learned. I wouldn't be who I am today if I hadn't gone through those hardships. But who you do business with is, I think, more important than what the actual product is itself. Who are the people? Great advice. Yeah, great, great advice. advice. All right. How much would you need in the bank to retire today? What's your number? So wrong is that the whole like your lifestyle keeps growing. I mean, I love nice things. I think that's why I was so drawn to y'all. I think we can appreciate the champagne lifestyle, right? The luxury. I think for me, the number to where I would feel like 
complete, it just exhaled probably 10 million, but I wouldn't stop working. Cause I even realized like 10 million is not that much, right? Mm-hmm. To have 10 million in the bank. It's like, well, it's a good cushion. I'd continue working. So I think for me to just sit back and say, I'm set, it'd probably be closer to 30. Yeah. Right on. All right. Next question. If you could have dinner with someone dead or alive, who would it be? Teddy Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt or Winston Churchill. And a lot of my brand and something that's been a big influence in my life is the man in the arena speech. I mean, it's everything with like who I am today. And that primary question that drives my actions every day is, are you sitting in the stands? Are you standing in the arena? And I think that it gets me fired up. It anchors me and it reminds me of living and building a big life. But I would just love to talk to both of them and especially Winston Churchill and understand his frame of mind with all the things that he went through during that time. Okay. Next question. If you weren't doing what you're doing today, what would you be doing now? That's hard. (laughs) That's so hard. Well, if I was completely financially independent, I would be giving away my sales coaching. Like if I was worth 30, 40 million, I would be getting on as many stages as I could and helping business owners break through to the next level. Like there's no way I can live and not do sales coaching. I really feel like it's a gift that God gave me. And I would love to get to a place where I'm investing my time and doing it for free to help business owners better their life. Amazing. Amazing. All right, Keely, book smarts or street smarts? Street. <laughs> Before you finish it, street smarts. And I have a college education. I mean, I have a bachelor's degree. I thought about going back to get my MBA and I'm not knocking the system. I have a lot of friends that have several degrees, have doctorates, and I learned so much more with just real life lessons learned. And I'd much rather have street smarts than anything that the system, the educational system could give me. Okay. Last question. If you had a million dollars cash and you had to make one investment today, what would it be? That's such a good question. The one that I'm thinking about, I'm under an NDA and I can't tell you, I can't tell you, (laughs) but that's what I'd pour my money into. And it's in the tech space. Tech startups are risky, but I would throw it all in there. All right. That's a wrap. Nice. Nice. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Now that is a wrap. Just before you Uh, go, let everybody know what's the best way that they can reach you. Oh, find me on social media, LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook. Just shoot me a message. I love to talk to people. You're probably going to get a voice message back or maybe even a video. <laughs> I love to meet people through social media. Right on. Keely is spelled K-L-E-Y for the ones of us that don't know how to spell. There's <laughs> a lot of E's in there. Thanks so much. Really appreciate Thanks, it again. Dude. And we should do this again at some soon time telling us about next steps and what you've been up to. So hope to see you again. Thanks so much. Yes, thank you all so much. It's been a joy. I really appreciate it. Thank you for joining us for this episode. We hope this conversation enlightened you on how to win big in this highly profitable and risk-adverse space. Get on your feet and embrace this world that offers so many opportunities just waiting for you out there. Continue your journey to becoming a savvy real estate expert by subscribing to the show at cpicapital.ca. Don't forget to leave a positive rating and share with your friends. See you on the next one.